The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 10 this evening. The word of the Lord. Awake! Awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. The rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 11. The word of our God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons, but the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, 
and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to Isaiah chapter 52, beginning at verse 1, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Every great liberation starts in exactly the same way, with a people in bondage who need to be delivered. Every single great deliverance, every great liberation, starts in exactly the same way. Yet some forms of bondage are easier to detect than others. It's pretty easy to see that the Jews were in bondage in Egypt. They were under the whip of a taskmaster who was forcing them to make bricks. Toward the end, even forcing them to make bricks without providing the straw that they needed. It was obvious that they were in bondage and in need of deliverance. Even the generally milder suffering of the Jewish people during the Babylonian captivity could easily lead pious Jews such as Daniel to cry out to the Lord day and night for deliverance. And we remember that Daniel would open his windows wide and pray three times a day toward Jerusalem, looking forward to that time when God would deliver his people and bring them back into the promised land. These sorts of political and national bondage are easy to recognize. But the bondage to sin, or the bondage we have to our own pleasures, that can often be invisible in this world, and particularly invisible to ourselves. And yet, ultimately, these invisible forms of bondage to sin, and perhaps to our own pleasures, can be even more dangerous than the external bondage that would be imposed on us by our adversaries. In terms of bondage to our own pleasures, consider the fact that when Cyrus authorized the Jewish people to return from the Babylonian captivity, originally only around 50,000 of them actually made the trip. They had grown comfortable in Babylon, and they weren't willing to give up the comforts of their homes and their prosperity in the most powerful nation on earth in order to return to invisible promises, to a spiritual kingdom, to a place where God had promised to set his name. And since we live in a culture that is amusing itself to death, a culture which seems to imagine that life should never be hard or painful, we would do well to pause and consider the degree to which we have placed ourselves into that same sort of bondage. It's not that pleasures are bad. The problem is when our pleasures own us, so that any form of discomfort leads us to stray away from following Jesus and pursuing first the kingdom of God with all our hearts. The problem with bondage to pleasure and comfort, like the bondage that we have to sin, is that it is frequently invisible, at least to us. So the Lord uses stories of physical deliverance, most prominently his deliverance of his people out of Egypt 
in the Exodus, but also lesser stories like the return of his people from Babylon. He uses those external physical acts of deliverance as a model to show us what he does to deliver his people, including delivering us from Satan, sin, and death. Thankfully, the Lord repeatedly teaches us what his great work of redemption means because the Lord wants us to joyfully embrace who he is and what he is doing on behalf of his people. He wants you to know that he has acted on your behalf, that you are entirely secure in his love, not only for now, but for all eternity. That is what he's doing in this portion of Isaiah. He is giving the ancient people of God and through them us assurance of his great act of deliverance. In tonight's passage, the Lord is calling us to understand his own great act of deliverance so that we will embrace his gospel with enthusiasm and with great joy. Writing long before the Babylonian captivity took place, Isaiah prophesied both the destruction of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar and of Israel's return to the promised land. But Isaiah 52 talks about a surprising problem. What happens when the Jews return from Babylon to the promised land and they discover that they're still in bondage? Think about Jean Valjean from Les Mis for a moment. If you know that great story, you know that Jean Valjean was in prison for stealing a loaf of bread but because he tried to break out of prison, he got another 10 years added on to his sentence. Finally, the day comes when Jean Valjean is set free, and the world is like born again to him. It's all new. It's all filled with hope and excitement about the world that's going to be. Except everywhere he goes, everybody treats him like a hardened felon. He can't get a place to live. In fact, a farmer won't even lend, uh, rent him out his barn so that Jean Valjean can sleep with the animals. I mean, what sort of freedom is that? The, the doors of the prison were opened wide, but everywhere he goes, the prison very much remains. The small remnant of Jews who returned to Jerusalem felt something like this. After the initial joy wore off, they found themselves being harassed and oppressed while the Lord had yet to bless them. The Lord had yet to physically manifest his own return to Zion. I sometimes point out to you that even after the second temple is built, there is never that glorious filling of the temple like took place when Solomon's temple was built, symbolizing God's presence with his people. And if God wasn't going to return to his people, what was the point of being back in the promised land? But God, being rich in mercy, had a word for this remnant, a word that he had given through Isaiah long before that day. And having seen how Isaiah's prophecies that led to the Babylonian exile and the return from the Babylonian exile had already come to pass, the people of God had every reason to believe that this prophecy would come to pass as well. Not only chapter 52, but chapter 53, which speaks of the suffering servant who will die in our place. Look at verse 1 with me. Awake! Awake! 
Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. There lies the remnant in utter misery. And the Lord sends his servant with a stirring message. Wake up! That's what he's saying. Wake up! This passage is filled with imperatives. Uh, Awake! Awake! Put on! Put on! You're called to do something. Shake yourself. Rise up. Be seated. And loose the bonds from your neck. See, the people, as it were, had fallen asleep. Yeah, sure, God had physically brought them back to Zion, but things were tough there. It wasn't the glory they'd expected. And they were beginning to lose heart. And so the Lord grabs them with his word and his spirit and says, wake up. And yet while sleep had immobilized Zion, someone was acting on Zion's behalf. The Lord had roused himself to act on behalf of his people. So now he is calling them, and I would say by extension throughout history, calling us to rouse ourselves in return. The first thing the Lord calls his awakened people to do is to put on or to be clothed in strength. It's important to see that the Lord is not calling us to rise up and be strong in ourselves. That that might stir us up in our own pride for a minute, but that would be utterly futile. The Lord is not calling his people to be strong in ourselves. Rather, we are being called to be strong in the power of his might. Uh, The New Testament counterpart to this is found in Ephesians chapter 5. There Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's fantastic news. God is saying you have no more need to be afraid. For I, even I, am acting on your behalf. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Second, the Lord commands us to put on beautiful garments. One very fine commentator suggests that that's the end of mourning. You know, you wear sackcloth and you put dust on yourself while you're mourning. And this commentator suggests that this is a sign that mourning has come to an end. And I want to say there's something to that. That's that's partly right. But I think it's actually less than what God is telling us through Isaiah. See, the word here is not beautiful garments. The word that Isaiah uses means glorious garments, radiant garments. Here's why that's so important. You turn back to the Torah and you discover where this language is used. It's used when the high priest Aaron is invested with his office. He has garments that are for beauty and for glory. But see, Isaiah is not saying to the high priest in this day, Joshua, you put on radiant garments. Rather, this is a message to all of God's people. You are to be clothed in radiant garments. 
This is a message for the people of God. He is calling all the people of God to do this. See, the Lord is bringing about with the coming of the Messiah what he had originally intended his people Israel to be, a kingdom of priests. Beloved, that's you. You are a kingdom of priests. Now you'll recall that that's the original call upon Israel, that they were to be a kingdom of priests. Uh, But when God is giving them the very covenant document of the Ten Commandments, as Moses is ascending to the mount to meet with God, the people are down below making a golden calf and dancing around it. So as Moses comes down the mountain and he sees what's going on, he takes these commandments and he smashes them. Because Moses knows if this law is applied to this people, these people are doomed. God does graciously renew the covenant with Israel. But no longer is Israel truly a kingdom of priests that is going to mediate the Torah and God's word to the nations. Rather, the Levites are set apart to mediate the word of God to Israel. But Isaiah is saying, you know what? In the midst of this failure, in the midst of this smallness, which is a remnant returning to Babylon, you need to know what God is up to. God is sending the Messiah. These are the servant psalms. And when the Messiah comes, his original purpose, his plan A, will be carried out. Clothe yourself in radiant garments, for you are a kingdom of priests. That's beautiful. And yet there's a problem. The Lord calls Jerusalem the holy city. Uh, That means Jerusalem is a city that is set apart for God's unique purposes. God himself sets his name there and his special presence there, which leads to a real problem for us. If the city belongs to God in a special way, how could the Babylonians devastate it in the first place? If God is living in the city, doesn't that make the city invincible? And the answer to that question is yes, absolutely. So long as the Lord is guarding the city, that city is invincible, though all the nations on earth should rise up against it. But Ezekiel tells us the answer to this question. God abandoned the city because of Israel's sin. It's actually a very fascinating passage back in Ezekiel chapter 11, where we're given a vision for the portable throne scene, as it were, of the Lord Almighty. Picking up in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 22, we read this. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Isn't that fascinating? God, as it were, is taking his portable throne And he's leaving Jerusalem. And the whole thing that made Jerusalem holy was God set his name and his presence there. And because of centuries of idolatry and sin, God is abandoning his people. It's important to see that God doesn't abandon Jerusalem because the Babylonians sack it. The Babylonians are only able to sack Jerusalem because God had first handed over his people 
He had taken away his special presence. The destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians is a consequence of the Lord's departure and not its cause. That'll become important as we try to understand the gospel more fully in terms of the Lord's presence with his people. So please keep this picture of God's absence in mind. Verse 2. The Lord says, Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Um, You're a very smart congregation, but that was probably a bit unfair to you. Um, We just leapt right into Isaiah chapter 52. Probably most of you weren't speed reading through Isaiah this week. So let me bring you back just a few chapters to Isaiah 47. And this will really help you match up the imagery here. In Isaiah 47, the Lord is speaking not to Israel, but to Babylon. Haughty Babylon, the superpower of the day, who has lifted themselves up. And the Lord says he's going to humiliate her. This is what he writes. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered, and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will spare no one. Do you see it? See, Isaiah 52, verse 2, is a reversal of the picture. Babylon had been exalted as this great and powerful nation. And God is saying, I'm going to bring you down into the dust. Now he's telling the people of God, you have been pushed down into the dust but I, the living God, am going to exalt you. Israel had been chastised and brought low for a time, but now the Lord is calling her to cast off her dust and to be freed from the bonds on her neck. Isn't that the very thing that we heard just last Sunday morning as we looked at Mary's Magnificat together? Mary had sung, He has shown strength with his arm, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And see, once we've noticed that Isaiah 52 is reversal of the picture we get in uh, Isaiah 47, the reversal of the circumstances between Babylon and Israel, we actually get an insight into what the Lord means when he says, Be seated, O Jerusalem. See, he's tearing Babylon down from its throne. So be seated means sit on thrones. I am raising you up. Zion shall be the head and no longer the tail. One way to think about this is, verse 1 is telling us, you are a kingdom 
of priests. In verse 2 is saying, you are a kingdom of priests. You're both. In Christ, you are both kings and priests who will rule and worship the Lord with him forever. Verse 3. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Now there are a number of different verses, uh, approaches to this verse. I'm not going to go through them this evening. But one of the things I want you to see out of this verse is, it really undermines what is known as a ransom theory of the atonement. Uh, A ransom theory of the atonement is that somehow God paid a debt to someone else, normally Satan, in order to redeem you. But see, that's wrong. Uh, When the Babylonians took Israel into captivity, they didn't pay God anything. And when God brings his people out of Babylon, or earlier out of Egypt, he does not pay Babylon, or he does not pay Pharaoh a dime. That is not how he redeems his people. He doesn't pay them. He tramples our enemies into the dust. The same thing is true with our sin. Satan did not pay the Lord anything when human beings passed into spiritual bondage. And the Lord does not pay Satan anything when he redeems you from your bondage to sin and death. Now that may sound obvious to all of you. You're well taught. You know God's word. But you should realize this is a popular understanding throughout the history of the church. That somehow the Lord pays Satan a debt to redeem us. And after all, isn't he our kinsman redeemer? Well, yes, he is. But you have to ask this question. Who does Jesus pay the debt to? Right? The wages of sin is death. That that is something that you owe because of your sins. Jesus does not pay that to Satan. He pays it to Almighty God. It is Almighty God who out of his holy wrath is ready to pour out wrath on every single sin that is ever committed. Jesus pays that debt in our place. It's a dreadful misunderstanding to imagine that the Lord is somehow buying off Satan. It elevates Satan and drags down the Lord. Almighty God did not receive a payment from Satan. And when Christ redeems us from bondage, Satan's sin and death are not paid off. They are trampled underfoot. How could the people both in and after the Babylonian exile be assured that the Lord was going to do this? It's one of the things we heard this morning. As a good father, the Lord wants you to know that you are secure in his love. He wants you to know that you have been redeemed. So how could these people being brought out of the Babylonian exile, be assured that the Lord was going to do this very thing. Verse 4. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. How could the people returning from the Babylonian exile know that God was going to deliver them? God says, look back. Don't you remember I did that when my people were in Egypt? With a mighty and outstretched hand, I delivered them. 
right? Don't you remember that I sent Assyria up against Judea? And I delivered you from them too. In fact, in a single night, I sent out one angel and he killed 185,000 Assyrians to deliver you. The way to remember that God is going to deliver you in the present and the future is to remember and celebrate how he has already delivered you and his people in the past. I should ask you this evening if sometimes you struggle with believing that the sin which has so entangled your life will in fact be completely defeated, not only in principle but in practice that one day you will be completely liberated from the power and the presence of sin. Beloved, the way you know that that, can know that that will be true in your life is to look back on God's prior victories that he has already accomplished, to come to the Lord's table week after week and hear Jesus say to you, this is my body given for you. To know that God, having spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, will surely give us all things in and with him. See, the Lord declares this history to us so that we will have assurance and so that his great name will be praised. Verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, The rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. Because the Lord cares deeply about the suffering of his people, we can easily imagine that the thing that he cares about most is ending our suffering. Yet in reality, the Lord is also very concerned for the glory of his own name, and that when we suffer, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Thankfully, God has so created and ordained the universe so that he being glorified and his people being blessed are never in conflict with each other. They always go together. But we should not imagine that we have become the center of the universe. The living God is greatly concerned with the glory of his own name. How was God's name despised while his people were in captivity? Well, for one thing, many people would have said the Babylonian gods conquered Israel's gods. Yahweh's the loser in this battle. He's not the biggest god there is, even though he spoke into existence the entire universe. Well, that's a temporary problem. But there is another problem as well, and that is the sins and the disobedience of God's people. We who have been so identified with God that God has put his name upon us. You know, that's true of you as Christians. You are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And even the fact that you're called Christians takes Christ's title and applies it to you. And therefore, if you live without faith, If you run the way of this world, God's name is blasphemed because of us. To make matters even worse, Babylon was boasting of the fact that their gods 
and their nation was the greatest, having triumphed over Yahweh. In Isaiah 47, verse 10, we are told that Babylon even blasphemously put herself in the place of God. She claimed, I am, and there is no one besides me. Now, if you hadn't read that in Isaiah, you would think right away, I am, and there's no one besides me. That must be Yahweh. It can't possibly apply to anyone else. And you would be right. But Babylon was putting herself in the place of Almighty God. This blasphemy is why, after the Lord uses the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians as the rod of his chastising judgment against his people, that he brings each of these nations into severe judgment. As the Lord himself declared to Pharaoh, I will glorify myself and magnify my glory by bringing you to ruin. As I say, though, there's another way in which the name of the Lord is dishonored. And this is one that presses more closely upon us as God's people in the 21st century. I think it was last Sunday morning. I'm not sure, actually. Sometimes I forget when I say things. But perhaps last Sunday morning when I reminded you of that very famous saying from John Piper, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. There's some truth to that. But it raises an obvious problem. What happens when we're not satisfied in God? What happens when we're not displaying that we're satisfied in God? Are we not, by that very act, dragging God's holy name through the mud? What does it mean when we mourn as though we have no hope? Well, the Lord says that such a situation is intolerable. So he is committing to acting in such a way that we will repent of our practical unbelief. He says, Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. This is a glorious truth that the Lord wants all of his people to believe. As Paul would later ask, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then Paul quotes this very passage from Isaiah as it is written, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. See, the gospel message is not merely the announcement of something beneficial that has overtaken us as though we won the lottery or something. You know, good news, you won. It's not as though you inherited a lot of money. The gospel is a shout of victory. As I like to remind you, there was no internet back then, in Isaiah's day or in the first century when our Lord came, and there was no cable news in the ancient world. When armies went to war and 
The people back home, their livelihoods, their futures depended on the outcome of the battle. So when the battle was decided, particularly if it was decided favorably, the commanding general would send messengers. These messengers would sometimes run great distances to bring back the news that General so-and-so or King so-and-so has conquered all our enemies. We won! Right? That, that's a big deal. That actually leads to a very helpful way to remember what the gospel is. It's an announcement of God's victory. The, go- the gospel is the good news of the victory of God in Jesus Christ over Satan's sin and death on behalf of his people. And God sends messengers, that would be us, out to announce this good news. Of course, back in the ancient world, as the general would send out these messengers, people would be looking for them. Perhaps the most famous example in the Bible comes from the time when David's forces finally and decisively defeat Absalom. In 2 Samuel 18, we read this. Remember, David had been driven out into exile by his own son. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, Look, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. Good news. All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the the Cushite said, Good news, my lord, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. Did you hear what the Cushite said? Good news. That's the announcement of the gospel. The victory of God in this case was on a much smaller basis than what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. But it is an announcement of God's acting and his good news. It was the good news that the Lord spoke as he conquered David's enemies. See, Isaiah puts us in this very same position. He puts us in the place of David and his men who are waiting in this city temporarily for the news of how the battle went. Then we come to hear this fantastic news that the Lord has delivered us, not merely from Absalom, 
but from all our enemies. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Imagine the watchmen looking out in Isaiah's day and now the people that have returned from Babylon. They're looking out over the rubble of Jerusalem that has been laid waste by the Babylonians almost two generations earlier. Imagine them seeing a messenger running toward them. They can see him running with confidence and with joy. He's obviously bringing news of a great victory. And as he draws near, he begins to shout out the good news. Peace! We have been delivered. Our king has conquered all our enemies. Our God reigns. And so all the watchmen burst into singing together, for they can see clearly with both of their eyes what the herald is portraying right in front of them. The Lord has returned to Zion. Now remember what I said earlier about the absence of Yahweh from Zion. The great tragedy was not that Jerusalem was destroyed. It was that the Lord had abandoned the city to his enemies because of their sin. And therefore, the ultimate good news for us as God's people is not the absence of our enemies. It is not even the destruction of our enemies. Rather, it's the presence of our God after he has trampled our enemies into the dust. God is committing to living with you, to making his home with you in this world, and to causing you to live with him in his home forever. Let me encourage you that when you think of the gospel, that you don't stop with the cross or even the empty tomb. Take it all the way to Christ's exaltation, where he has been given authority in heaven and on earth, and he has taken up his seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Our Savior, who will never leave us nor forsake us, is ruling over every single molecule in the universe, and he is ruling over it right now. And that's not just to Jerusalem, but this message is announced. Verse 10 tells us this, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The name of the Lord is not going to simply be praised in Jerusalem. And it's not simply going to be praised in this local church with just a handful of us gathered here this evening. God's name will be praised to the ends of the earth. As Malachi would later put it, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Well, there's one more remarkable twist to this good news. and It'll be easiest for you to grasp if I bring you up to date, at least up till the time of Christ. Suppose an important general like Pompey going off and fighting a great battle. 
As I mentioned, there's no internet, there's no CNN or MSNBC or any of those other stations who hardly anyone ever watches anymore anyway. And the people back home, they care about the outcome of the battle. And so Pompey wins a great victory, conquers Rome's enemies. What does he do? He sends back messengers to Rome, and they announce good news. They actually use this very word, euangelion, which we use in the New Testament for gospel. Good news. Pompey has been victorious over our enemies. Well, you know, Rome won a lot of battles, so they weren't all celebrated in a great way. But if the battle was really significant, the conquering general would come back to Rome and he would not enter the city. He would wait outside the city. And what he would do is he would call out his loyal supporters, prominent people, senators, who had backed his career all along, and they would come out of the city with him. And then the city would put on a Roman triumph. That, that's like a ticker tape parade on steroids. It was the greatest honor that could be given to a Roman. And Pompey or whoever was conquering would go through the city and receive this great honor. But all the people that he had called out of the city would march with him. They would be treated as though they had helped win the battle, although they hadn't fought for it at all. Beloved, do you understand that's what Jesus Christ does for you? See, that's what the rapture is about. The rapture is not about God calling his people away from this terrible earth so we can go up to heaven and be with him forever. Rather, when the Lord comes back, with all his enemies being at his feet, he calls his faithful to himself, the living and the dead. He calls us to him that we will meet him in the air, not so that we go to heaven with him, but so that we come back to earth in his triumph, as he is celebrated as the great conqueror, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Here's the really astonishing thing. He does that even though you didn't fight a single bit of the battle. He does that even though some 2,000 years after he was born, you were still his enemies. If you will choose to follow Jesus Christ tonight, if you will put your trust in him this very evening, Christ will treat you as though you had been his loyal supporter all along. That's just amazing. And so let us this very night be in prayer for our loved ones who do not yet know Jesus Christ, that by God's grace they would bow his knee to him and they will be welcomed into glory as though they had been his faithful warriors for righteousness throughout our Christ's life. Merry Christmas. Amen.